Welcome to Comedy Centric, your place for all things comedy. Every week we'll discuss the legends and the people who built the business, the performers, writers, behind the scenes, and stories that you have never heard. So relax, take a load off, and join us for this episode of Comedy Centric. Now the host of your show, nationally headlining comedian, a woman with a wicked sense of humor and a killer Jersey accent, Julia Scotty. Welcome to Comedy Centric. I want to introduce my my right-hand person before we do anything. Uh, this is Kathy Caldwell, the pride of, uh, of uh, Stapleton, Missouri. Okay, that's where she's from. Uh, we got, we got to, we're going to get, normally we talk and we make stupid talk right at the beginning here, but we're not going to make stupid talk today because we have, uh, I've been driving people crazy for the last three weeks with, with this guest today. And uh, I am, this is for me, this is the, one of the biggest days of my life. So uh, I am proud. Uh, if you're a fan of the Dick Van Dyke show, if you're a fan of the, that girl, if you're a fan of Kate and Allie, this guy, along with his partner, Sam Denoff, uh, wrote, uh, I, I can't even tell you how many he wrote, but he, he's got 12 Emmy nominations, won five Emmys. Ladies and gentlemen, the living legend, Bill Persky. Thank you, Bill. Yay, there he is. How do you do? Very nice to see you and glad to be living. Well, <laughs> we're glad you're living too. And speaking of living, uh, tomorrow is a very special day for you. Yes, it is. Correct? It's my 91st, 91st birthday. Yeah, we know that and because you told me uh, well, not you to get you a present. Oh, oh, I blew TV. it out. Wait. Oh, what are you lighting there? What? I'm I lighting a candle. Lighting candle. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, we have to we have to sing to you. Uh, uh, you ready, sweet. guys? Ready? Happy birthday, birthday to you. Happy birthday, Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Happy dear, birthday Billy. dear Bill. Happy birthday, Happy birthday to, you. to you. Thank you very much. I'm going to blow them out. Gotta, go ahead. The, Good, ready? Blow it out. There. Okay. First you, then, then you. There you go. The magic. <laughs> oh, of you wanted to meet Shannon. You wanted to meet Shannon. She just brought me a glass of white wine. This is Shannon. Hi, Hi, Shannon. How Hi, are you? Hi, Shannon. Is he, is he giving you trouble? Shannon, uh, oh, always. <laughs> no, he's awesome. Can I have a glass of white wine, Shannon? Sure. It worked with the candle. Why, why <laughs> so, uh, look, I've got, look at this. Look at this book, okay? Look at these notes. I, I've been, oh my, my entire life for the last two weeks has been uh, about Bill Persky. Um, oh starting God. with cousin lester and the roto broiler oh god that's you got that oh i forgot that was in there yeah, that was my first job um in advertising and my cousin lester had this small advertising agency and his main client was this was back in 1954 and his main client was uh roto broil 400 which was the original broiler that now everybody has. And, you know, it was a lot of people living in apartments and it w it did everything. Roast toast, broils, boils, bakes and fries all at the same time, whether you wanted to or not, because there was one heat source. So you would, uh, oh, there's a couple stories about Roto-Broil that I don't think are in there. Anyway, I was the, 
associate producer, which meant I was earning $30 a week and did everything but bring lunch and make lunch. But for the commercials, I would buy the food to illustrate. And on the top of it, you'd have a Pyrex dish boiling something. Then you'd have a turkey or a little chicken going around. Then you'd have roasted potatoes and you'd have something else and, 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 and buns warming so that it showed the whole thing. And so that was my first job. And I have to tell you two stories I don't think you know. One was that I was inadvertently responsible for Steve Allen's Man on the Street interviews being created. Oh, that, yeah, I want uh, to hear he that. Was, yeah, he was, well, it's, both of these stories are how inept I was. Well, not really me in the first. The first one, me. The second one, Ernie Kovacs. But I would pick up food to go to the show, and we did one spot on Steve's show every Tuesday night. And there was a little grocery store near WOR radio, uh, television, which was on was right between uh, Amsterdam and, and uh, Columbus. And that's where Steve came out of. And so I was late, and I grabbed a bunch of stuff, and I grabbed a can of Brussels sprouts, not noticing that it was severely dented and had been stored next to a heating pipe. The preparatory area in the studio for me to put all my stuff together was next to the air conditioning intake. And it was a summer night. And when I opened the can of Brussels sprouts, they had disintegrated into a green fog that was sucked into the air conditioning. Oh my God. And created, created poison gas to the level people were screaming and they had to move the show out on the street. So from then on, that was the beginning of man on the street. Wow. Why is there no video of that boy? No kinescope well, of that anyway? No, they didn't know it was history. Did they? No. Did, did, did they know it was you? Did, yeah. Did, no, but the funny you? thing is I worked the first big job that I got was in, and in, in, when I say I, at a certain point, it you know it was my partner Sam Denoff up to a point, and then we had a very amicable separation because I wanted to become a director. And at any rate, we our first job was working for Steve Allen on his show in in uh, in Hollywood, and that's what got us into. And we had this deal that uh, well, that's the other picture that you want to show, the first picture that you want to show, and we had a deal that we had a three week guarantee for $500 each. We were working at WNW radio for $75 each. And then it meant that we had to either give up those jobs and go out to California with a three week guarantee and no, no hope of anything after that. If we didn't make it, my wife was pregnant and I just said, we got to do this. The only time I'm ever going to get a chance, but I don't take it now. So at any rate, the, the, we had three week guarantee. Then we had another three weeks, then another three weeks. And after that, they would have picked us up for the season. Also, as a new time writer coming out with us from California to California was Buck Henry. He was also oh, on yeah. that stage. And uh, so anyway, we went through the first two weeks and we were okay, but nothing spectacular. 
And then in the third week, there was a show called Ben Casey. Back then, it was one of the first of the of the doctor shows with with Vince Edwards, very mm-hmm. brooding guy, and Sam Jaffe, who was the head of the hospital. Sam Jaffe was a very great Yiddish theater actor who incidentally in played yeah. yeah in a yeah. diaper. And anyway, he was Dr. Zorba and he had hair out to there. And the show started by, you know, he would have a blackboard and a pointer and he would say, and there were these chalk figures on, on there. And he would say, this is the sign for man. This is the sign for woman. This is birth. This is death. And this is infinity. And then you go into Ben Casey. Well, when we did the sketch, Joey Foreman, who was a very mm-hmm. great mimic, he played Dr. Zorba and Steve was going to play Ben Casey. So the joke was, and this is a joke that I swear to God, if it hadn't been for this joke, I don't know that I'd be here now. And uh, we did. Can you show the thing as I'm doing it? Or I'll, I'll do it when I do the punchline to the whole thing. This is the sign for man. This is the sign for woman. This is birth. This is death. This is infinity. And this is a pussycat. And there was <laughs> a little chalk figure. Can you show that on the screen? Because I did happen to have that picture sent to me. Anyway, Steve laughed for about an hour. And he picked us up for the whole season. And the show was canceled the next week. So they had to pay us $13,000. And that allowed me to stay in California. And not only that, but I was able to lend my friend Ernie Chambers, who had been doing, brought out at the same time to do the Bob Newhart show, and he got fired. And so I loaned him $1,000. And Ernie was the producer of the Smothers Brothers, the original producer. That's why and, I thought I knew that name, yeah. Uh-huh. Ilson and Chambers. And so mm-hmm. that all those careers were saved by that one joke. By you, <laughs> by that one joke. But you, um, you, you, going back to WNEW, you got the Steve Allen thing because of um, Shapiro. George. Uh, George Shapiro, George who you met in George New York, right? Shapiro. Yeah, George Shapiro, who probably is more well-known than any other agent manager mm-hmm. because he's Jerry Seinfeld's manager for 47 years. He discovered Andy Kaufman and and actually played in the movie, The what was the name of the movie that they did with uh, Danny DeVito played George. Man on the Moon? Man on the Moon. Oh, Man anyway, on the Moon, George, oh yeah. Yeah, George played the, a nightclub owner in that one. Anyway, we Sam and I were working at WW Radio for $35 a week at that point. And uh, I, I got a job at WW. It was the first job in the industry that I got before actually, what well, was right after Cousin Lester. But things were not great after Cousin Lester. And I was kind of lost. And I got a job. I saw it in the New York Times. $30 a week to be in the continuity department at WW Radio. 
And I didn't know what a continuity department was, but I figured at $30 a week, I mean, you didn't, it wasn't going to be brain surgery. So I went for an interview and the guy who was going to hire me, he said, okay, I'm going out to lunch. I want you to write a commercial, a jingle, and a funny weather report. And he walked out the door and I panicked. I didn't know how to do any of those things. And I didn't know how long his lunch was going to be. But when he came back, I had done it and he gave me the job. And then he got a phone call from the guy he had lunch with, which was actually a job interview. So he got that job and I became the head of the continuity department all in the same three hours. And I still didn't know what it was. And it was still $30 a week. And that's when I had to hire an assistant for myself. And I met Sam then. Sam had been the bargain broadcaster at Klein's department store, which was a big bargains department store, huge. And Sam would go on and say, attention shoppers, there is a carload of pantaloons from China going on a special sale, being accompanied with a special fan from Iran. I mean, it went, and he did all that. One day, he said, attention shoppers, we just received a truckload of maiden form bras, and this is going to be a bust out sale. So they fired him. <laughs> and I hired him. And so we started writing jokes. The continuity department meant you put the book together for the disc jockeys, do a commercial, do the weather, say hello to your mother, whatever the hell came next, play a record. And we started writing little jokes on the thing just because it was so boring. And the, the station, the header station, said, well, keep doing that. that. That's working well. People like that. And uh, so we did. And then our first Christmas there, uh, we wrote a whole musical show about the, the station. And uh, this little guy came up to us afterwards and he said, you guys are, are good and I'd like to be your agent. I said, oh my God, an agent. I never thought of an agent. I said, that's great. He said, yeah, my name is George Shapiro. And I'm at the William Morris office. I said, well, can I have your card? He said, well, I don't have my cards yet because until today I was in the mail room. <laughs> so, wow. So the three of us, I mean, we were George's first clients and he fought for us and, you know, and we just came up together, you know, and he, he, he was the most wonderful guy in the world. And he, he, he used to say to people, uh, the boys get a hundred dollars a minute or not a word goes on paper. No one had ever heard of us. Some, some comic who was getting started said, well, how do I know they're any good? He said, paid a hundred dollars and find out. <laughs> you, uh, you, client, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yep. Our best client was a kid who was in high school who wanted to be a comedian and it was Ron Carey. Uh, who was one of the dearest, funniest. You know, it's so funny. There, as you get older, if you're around, the hardest thing is to sit someplace and have people talk about something because immediately you have a story that fits that, you know, that situation. And you don't want to 
become obnoxious, but they're great stories. Ron Carey was this 16-year-old, 17-year-old kid because he could drive, and he was so brilliantly funny, and uh, he was scared. He lived in New Jersey, Italian family, and he was terrified to go anywhere that he couldn't hear WNEW on the radio because oh, that so meant that he had, that we were with him. And he got a job in Altoona or someplace and it was through all kinds of mountains and stuff. And he got so scared because he couldn't hear, he turned back. <laughs> he didn't show up. Really? Well, it, it, in many ways, comedy hasn't changed much, Bill. It's, it's, it's the same, you know, we've all gone through Altoona. But you, you guys were hired to write for other comedians. And oh, you yeah. tell a story about Alan and Ross. I have a I connection feel, to them. I always feel bad about this because everybody likes uh, Marty Allen. And, and, and I don't have anything against him. But I just, I never thought they were funny. And uh, everybody at that point wanted to be the new Martin and Lewis. Because mm -hmm. that was that was the bellwether of what great comedy was. And no one ever made it, you know. But Martin and Rossi came close. And we had written for a number of, of, of teams. And we, we wrote for a team. <laughs> it started out, it was Chase and Martin. It, uh, it, no, it was Martin and, and Chase. It was Martin and it was Chase, whatever. It went through 23 things. They kept finding new partners for Chase. And then we figured out <laughs> Chase was the problem. <laughs> what did the other guy? So anyway, they finally, a guy, Mitchell, came along. And he would, they were managed by Joe Scandori. And Joe Scandori was Don Rickles' manager. And he was the manager of a nightclub in Brooklyn called the Elegante which was like the off-Broadway version of the Copa. And you'd go to the Copa on the weekend, but during the week, he would set up a, a he would sell the, the, the nightclub out. You'd get dinner, you'd get a show, you'd get drinks, you'd get dancing, and he'd sell it out to groups. The only thing is he'd sell it out to groups like DP, would be next to the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, they there were people that were not, it was not an audience, it was a mob. People said, they, they all thought they had the whole place. And there were uh, African-Americans there, supremacists, and Joe had this guy go. And he was, in, in those days- Bill, Bill, hold on a second. I think we're freezing up. I think we're, are you freezing up, Jimmy? Jim? Yeah, no, I'm I'm, it's. I think it's just uh, something. I'm talking Bill's too long. No, I'm no, talking. you're not talking long. No. no, no, you just you froze up. We don't want to miss anything. Yeah. So oh, keep okay. going. Anyway, keep going. every every nightclub in America had a Rocco. Except you know, you call a nightclub, you'd hear either you'd say is Rocco there, and he'd say just a minute or speaking. At the Elegante, there was a third option is which one it was the only nightclub in america that had two roccos so you didn't fool, <laughs> fool around there and uh oh god there's just so many stories but at any rate 
we, we, Joe liked us and spread the word around. So we got to be introduced to other people. Like we wrote for Dick Sean because of, of, of Joe. We did a piece for Dick Sean. He wanted to do a musical version of Lolita because that had just, the movie had just come out. And we wrote him a 20 minute thing with songs and dancing and everything. And the first time he did it was in, at the Dorado in, or the Dorado in, one is a fish and one is a hotel. Which is it? Dorado is a fish. He was at the Doral. Anyway, uh, we went down there. Oh, Doral is a hotel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one of the old hotels, yeah. And uh, we went down there, and we left in a huge snowstorm on a Friday night, and we couldn't get back until the following Tuesday. We spent the weekend with Dick Sean, Don Rickles, and Sophie Tucker. Oh, my God. That, that, oh my God! <laughs> you no, know, you can't invent the wonderful, bizarre things that happen to you. I mean, most of your audience doesn't know Sophie Tucker, but she was they known should, as the though. last of the mamas, and yeah, they she should. She was a big, busty, lustful woman. In her, by that time, she was in her late seventies, early eighties, and she was huge and. Her big number in the show was Bang Bang Lulu from Banger. And she had a white sequence <laughs> cowboy suit. And she was big. I mean, it took many, many sequins. And she had two guns <laughs> and fire. And we sat and watched her for four nights. And then we go down and sit with Rickles, who was doing the lounge then. And, and Rickles back then was really... Uh, ang really angry. I mean, he would do the same kind of stuff, but he meant it back then, you know. Oh, really? He was drinking. Yeah, he was drinking a lot. And he was very heavy. And, of course, Dick Sean was a genius, you know. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Any anyway, through that is how we got to be introduced to, Rowan, uh, to Alan and Rossi. So we went to the Copa, and we were ringside, and they did their show and people loved them. And I hated them. And when the sh their performance was over, they came back, people slapping the women, kissing them. And, you know, they're opening their shirts and they're sweaty and they're <laughs> going. And everyone is saying, whoa, brilliant. And I'm saying, what the hell am I going to say to these people? I have some integrity. So anyway, when they finally got there, uh, Marty Allen said, huh? Huh? And I said, God, do you do 45 minutes? And he said, yeah, well, all I did was tell him how long they were on, and he took it as a compliment. <laughs> I love that. I never get tired of that. I was, I was Boy, in preparation for this. Huh? I was watching them this afternoon in preparation for this, to, you know, because I knew we were going to bring it up to you. You're right. They weren't, they were not funny. They just weren't funny. He I never got it either. It. But Marty was loved and is still around. Is he you really? Know, He's still he, alive. I think, well, I don't know. I am, so I guess he is. And uh, <laughs> well, well, you were touched by an angel, so uh, you know, you're going to be around forever. God, um, I tell you, those days writing for comics. I it, can't even it was imagine. The greatest, that. 
experience. What, huh? what did it, what did the day look like? How, did, what time did you start? Was it like a work day? Of no, we five? did it at night. We, we would work at WNEW during the day. Then we would go to have dinner at Horn and Hard Arts on 45th Street and 5th Avenue. There was a great Horn and Hard Arts. And it was so every story has a story. There were a group of four elderly women who got dressed up every night with hats, with pearls. They were probably in their 80s and they made tablecloths. The, the, the waiters there would put napkins down for them to have a tablecloth and they would have dinner together. And it was lovely, you know, it was so dear. And we became friendly with them. And then one day, Sissy was not there and Sissy had passed away and they were having dinner in her memory. But every story has more story. It was so rich at those times, you know, it just had everything had texture to it. I, I, so, I think so about the era. Would... Yeah. What? The, I think what? about sorry, the era that you, you came up and, and if you if you were if, were if you were to pick one. If I were to pick one, that's the one I would have picked. The, the dawn of television and uh, yeah. all of the things you got. To, it, 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 you'll never see that again. So how did you get to Carl Reiner then? Well, George, as it turns out, is Estelle Reiner's nephew. And no kidding. So, yeah. So he said to Carl, you know, these guys are terrific. And you should really see what they do. So... I really, you, your people are going to hate, you're going to start getting letters. Shut this guy up. No, uh, no, no, no. Don't you, no, 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 we, no, no, no. In those, in those days, you, you would write a sample script if you, if you wanted to try and get on a show. And well, the first show that we ever did was because on, on that Steve Allen show, before it was canceled, Tim Conway and the Smothers Brothers. That's who was discovered on those shows. And through Tim Conway, it was very hard to break. If you had done variety, it was very hard to break into situation comedy. You know, you had to prove yourself, but you couldn't prove yourself because no one would give you a job. So you had to write sample scripts. And uh, Timmy got us a job on McHale's Navy. And we wrote a show called The Letter for Fuji. You remember Mikhail's Navy? They had this yeah, Japanese uh -huh. prisoner who was their mascot. And he was lonesome, so they arranged for him to send a letter home by sneaking into a Japanese camp. And then they went there a little later to get the thing back. And uh, so we wrote this script. And at the same time, we had uh, written a script, sample script, for Carl Reiner. On the van, everybody in town. This was 1962. Van Dyke show was on 1960. And it was already a hit then. It was a hit then already by that well, point. Well, the first year they almost canceled it. Sheldon right. Leonard convinced them to to move it and give it a lead in to mm -hmm. with Green Acres and stuff. But every writer in town only wanted to write for the Van Dyke show because it was if you had if you did the Van Dyke show, you were gold. You could do mm -hmm. anything doing the Van Dyke show. So through George, we wrote a, a sample script and he got it to Carl. The day that 
we had a meeting with this very sweet guy, Cy Rosen, who was the producer of McHale's Navy. And we went to Universal and the script was 36 pages long. And he had a note on every line in the script. We went for lunch. It was a Chinese restaurant across the street. And Sam and I, we just said, well, obviously we got to find another line of work because we're only on page 12 and we've been there since nine o'clock this morning. Then we got back and we get out at four o'clock in the afternoon. We went back to our office. Now our office was at 8228 Sunset, the Bullwinkle building back in those days. It was a big statue of Bullwinkle in front. And we had an office. The Moose? At the, end. the Moose? Yeah, Bullwinkle. Yeah, they owned the building, their production company. And they rented out. You Don't you remember Bullwinkle and me? Yeah, I do. I just never knew there was a the Bullwinkle building. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, well, I mean, it was there where they, where they had their offices. And there was a long corridor. And uh, we had an office at the end of the corridor with not enough room for both of us to sit in. So Sam sat at the typewriter and I sat in the hall and up the corridor, two doors away was Ellis Gold Enterprises. He would, he was booking porn stars and stuff. And one day I was sitting in the hall and this girl was on the phone, no cell phones then, she was on the phone to you and she said, mom, mom, I got this job with Ellis and it's in, and she said, well, yes, but only up to the nipple. <laughs> words, are you going to have to show your tits? And she said, yeah, but only up to the nipple. Uh, uh. I, so I anyway, want to, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean ahead, to keep no, interrupting. I have another thing to tell you. I was curious <laughs> about, I've always been curious about what your process with Sam was and how and how you wrote. Did, uh, he typed did you jokes? Yeah, you know, I'd say, hey, let's do this. Or let's do that any time. And he said, well, what if we do? I said, okay, let's do. You know, it was a real collaboration. You know, it was it was a wonderful way to work. But the funniest thing about our office, which was so small, was over the desk there was a huge painting of Mount Fuji in Japan, <laughs> which was okay. But there were shutters to the side of it, so you could close it. It was like it was a window, and we were looking at Mount Fuji. I couldn't even get in the office. That's so funny. Anyway, we get back to the office, and we're just crushed. And Sam, we had written this sample script for Carl. And uh, Sam gets a call He's because he's in the office, and he starts to smile and smile. And, and I said, what, what, what? And we had left this other thing thinking we had to leave town. And Carl had read this sample script and he said he wants us to come in and work out a story. And he has a feeling that he's going to put us on the staff, which there wasn't. Carl was the staff, but he was going to give us an office and we could learn and go and write as many scripts as we could. And that was all in the same day, you know. And so what was the first one? I'm sorry. Go the ahead. first one was. The first one was uh, "That's My Boy" about the wrong baby, which God. you know, Ugh. and that that was the result of the thing about the Van Dyke show that made it so good. There was nothing 
that was done on that show that hadn't happened to somebody or hadn't almost happened to somebody. Uh, and when I had my, my first child, my wife, when we had our first child, I was living up in the hills and I timed the trip to the hospital at every possible time of the day just to make sure that, that I would get there in time. As it turned out, it started at three in the morning. I went tearing down the mountain. I knew exactly where to go. And two blocks from the hospital, I stopped for gas. <laughs> Did you do the thing with the hat when you would get out of bed in the morning? No, almost. But I mean, I just wanted to be sure we had enough gas to get there. You know, I didn't want to. Oh, that's so great. Anyway, when we were in the hospital, we, we got some wrong things, you know, the wrong lunch or the wrong whatever. And I actually said, how do you know you got the right baby? And back in those days, there was no DNA. And, right. you know, there were blood tests, but there was no definitive way to know if you were getting the right child. So when we came in to talk to Carl about the show, and I told him that story, he said, that's going to be it. And then we came to the point where the only solution, the only way to absolutely prove that it was the, their baby was to have the other couple be of a different ethnicity so that there was no question. And the choice was to have them, you know, uh, Asian probably. And Carl said, no, we're going to have it be a black couple. Now, this was 1963, and it was just the beginning of the civil rights movement. And, you know, the network said there was no way you can do that. Because we are not, we know that things are changing, but you cannot have a white couple making fun of a black couple, making them the butt of a joke. And Carl said, no, you don't understand. It's the black couple that's making the white couple the butt of the joke. And the guy almost died and said, well, Jesus, you certainly can't do that. <laughs> so Carl said, not only can we, but if we don't, I'm not going to do the show anymore. And you want to handle the publicity on that. So they I, said, I, okay. I, oh, go ahead. You want to tell them the go whole ahead. story about the left? Oh, I, I just want to say, I, I, like I told you before, I was, I was 11 year old. 11 years old when that episode had aired and I remember watching it and I never saw that coming when he when Dick Van Dyke yeah. opens that door and he's staying, I swear yeah. to God, I, I still didn't see it coming. Nobody. And Nobody. Uh, I think, I think I decided to be a comic at that point because of that. Oh, yeah. It's exquisite. Well, it, it was, it, it's a classic moment, you know, it's one of the top 10 listed funny moments classic moment but and it's really because carl had the courage to do it you know as much as i was part of it it was carl reiner who was the most extraordinary human being you would ever know at any rate it was a big gamble and it, it, we had an audience you know and there was like bleachers up there and there were like four or five hundred people and that's where the laughs came from and at the moment that the door opened and Dick stood there with a little shocked look on his face. And then Greg Morris is the guy who was the guy who came in. And he and Mitzi Kane, I think her name was, they came in and there was a deadly silence. 
And I was standing next to Carl and he said, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) And then they started to laugh. Mm. And they laughed for 20 minutes. Every time we try to start again with them coming in the door, we'd get a little further, but then there'd be another line and they'd laugh at that and we'd have to go back again. So it took us 20 minutes to do the last two minutes of the show. And uh, you can see Greg Morris really enjoying that moment because he's laughing his ass off. That was the thing, yeah, because it was the first time that Mm -hmm. an African-American and a Caucasian met eye to eye Mm -hmm. on an equal basis. That was the, that was, that was what it was about. He was not a caddy, waiter. He was not, he was another human being who had a Mm -hmm. baby and people just, they just bought it, you know, and, and they realized not only that it was funny, but that it was a major moment in humanity in its own way. I mean, I'm not making more of it than it is. It's I'm no, no. the kind, the kind of responses, the kind of responses were, oh, isn't this about time? You know? It and, was, and, and it was right around the time Kennedy was shot too, right? and Martin yeah, Luther King yeah. is coming. But the thing I love about that scene is once they get in the house, uh, I don't know if it was Greg Morris or his wife that hands Mary Tyler Moore, here's your figs. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that was the whole point of coming over. He was upset because they got his figs and we got their brownies or whatever it was. Yeah, it was just it was just a, the thing, you know, they at one point the Van Dyke takes a uh, footprint of the, the baby and they, yeah, <laughs> the, the kid's going to Jerry and uh, he are going to prove. And they take the footprint and he said, and he, Jerry's and he says to Jerry, "What do you think?" And Jerry says, "What do I know about football?" <laughs> yeah, I'm a and dentist. Jerry looked at the baby, and she said, "Why is his foot blue?" And he said, right. "Jerry and I were conducting a series of tests." He was so <laughs> he does so, it in that Jack Webb, uh, the Jack Webb kind of so wonderful. God, yeah. he would try to justify himself and he'd become increasingly and you know in that show there's a moment that to me is the, my favorite line in the show and it isn't even a joke and but i love the way he did it and it was as he's about to open the door after mary has been arguing you're crazy you can't do this and he stood it there and she said nobody is taking my baby and he said laura I think it would be best if you went to your room. <laughs> right, and that you know the women's the women's movement was just coming up. Yeah, huh? It was, it was the women's movement was just starting to to blossom, and it was such a sexist you know, comment. And it was, yeah. real, I mean, it was so ahead of its time. But uh, she could God, also I, tell him to go to his room. That was the great thing about that show. He was as afraid of her as she was. Oh, sure. Him, you know, he was scared yeah. to let to be a fool in her eyes, but Dick did things you couldn't, what you would often do with Dick Van Dyke is write a circumstance and you'd write a joke or whatever, but within the framework of it, he would find something Mm -hmm. all on his own that was funnier than anything you could have conceived. You wouldn't conceive of that happening. I mean, there was a show we did 
where there was a nude painting of Mary that showed up. October, October with, Eve, right? Yeah, October that? Eve yeah. with Doc, with Carpetna, the painter, which Carpetna. Carl played. Yeah. And what it was is this painter painted people, and no matter what, he painted them naked. And so this picture <laughs> of her showed up in a gallery, and, it, and Mary was so afraid, and everybody had seen it, but Dick and she finally in the kitchen you remember that kitchen had a work right. surface with a stove and everything and she said i have to tell you something he was leaning over she was on that side he was on this side of the stove and she said there's a picture and it just was so the way you know she played every second of it before it came out and he says and it it, it, it it's nude you're nude well, I wasn't nude, but I am nude. And he said, so there, let me understand it. There is a painting that people can see with their eyes where you are naked. She said, yes. And she said, I'm so sorry. She said, honey, I'm here for you. And he's so convincing. And when she walks out of the room, he stands up and he's holding the grill tops from the burners. He had been so intense. That's right. And you couldn't write that. When he came up, that laugh was, I mean, it said everything about how upset he was. And, mm -hmm. and he was just walking around. He didn't the, look on his face was, the look on his face was just unbelievable. All right, did I do something wrong? Yeah, one second. One second. Hold on. What happened? What happened? Oh, I hit something in my fervor. I, as I said, he was walking around for about two minutes with these stovetops on his hands, not knowing he had them. And and he it was he just was um there was a show. You remember the show where Mary was had her toe caught in the yeah. faucet at the at the yes. hotel of their romantic night and the door was locked and he was gonna break down the door. He was wearing a smoking jacket and, and an ascot, and he was just a romance. And he ran to break down the door, and he hit it, and he hurt himself. Mm -hmm. And he said, I, I'll get it this time. And he ran, and in the air, he realized he hurt that shoulder. And in midair, he turned around and hit it with his other shoulder. Mm -hmm. You can't. He, he spun like a ballerina, he, a ballet, ballet dancer. Yeah, he he just spun, well, basically. Was he, was, he was a dancer. And uh, she learned everything from him. I mean, you know, another but thing. But she Mary had was, funny bones, right? She had funny oh, bones. Yes, to oh, begin absolutely. With. Absolutely. But Mary had to cry. And what? What did I do? Nothing. Oh, Mary had to cry a lot, you know, and she didn't know how to funny cry. So Carl said to her, then don't cry. She said, well, it says to cry. And she said, yeah, but cry, but don't cry. So she then came up with what was <laughs> the sup sup thing, which she did became her version of crying that was classic. <laughs>